Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. What is War? Part 2. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we'll be discussing the latter half of What is War, the first chapter of Clausewitz's book. But before we get into that, I had some excellent fights with my buddy Toto. And by fights, I mean I was teaching him how to play Kill Team. Now, to do this, he didn't know much about it. He was new to uh, most things Warhammer, didn't know much about the lore, didn't know much about the game, and so I figured I would build two uh, teams that were evenly matched, but very different play styles. So the one team was a well-balanced kind of space marine unit. You had one Terminator with an assault cannon and power fist, a blade guard sergeant with, of course, the power sword and bolt rifle, aggressor primaris, and an eliminator. So different models with very different kind of ideas to how they're played and kind of a well-rounded uh, team that's capable of doing just about everything. M- much like the the, um, the strengths of Space Marines are supposed to be. They're not amazing, really, at, at any one thing. They're pretty darn good at most things. And so that was uh, one team. The other team was Gene Stealers. That's it. Just, just Gene Stealers. Uh, angry Bugs. And so you had nine versus four, and I, I gave him the choice. I said, which team would you like to play? And he kind of hemmed and hawed and went back and forth, but he went with the team that I was pretty sure he was ultimately going to choose, knowing him, and he went with the Space Marine team. Toto's very an elite fighter. He's been on the show before, and we've discussed him. And so, you know, he, he comes to the board with a certain idea of how to play, and and so do I. I'm, I wasn't looking to gotcha hammer. Obviously, I was helping him with the rules, helping him with some basic tactics and maneuvering things, but I was leaving his overall strategy up to him. I wanted to see what he would do. Now, the first game we played was extremely one-sided. We rolled for it, and it was the uh, particular scenario, and this is old kill team. I still haven't gotten into the new stuff, but um, it was a scenario where basically you have to run off each other's board edge. And the, mo- the models you get across are, are how you win. Gene Stealers are fast. I mean, I, I know that I've been playing them for a little bit, but every time I play them, I'm like, these guys are so fast. And so I, I clogged up his... He kind of had them spread out. And so I rushed the one side, clogged him up with a few of my specialists, and then everybody else just ran past whoosh, off the board. Easy win. And so he said, what about a rematch for something that's a little bit more evenly matched? And I said, absolutely. That one was heavily weighted in my favor. 
And so the second one we did was one where you got points for killing other models, obviously, but also points at the very end of the round or the very end of the game for how many objectives you controlled. Now, both of us went into it fully realizing that that counting of objectives at the end was never going to happen. I was Gene Steelers. He was Space Marines. It was going to come down to just a slogging fight. And if by some miracle we made it to the end, uh, neither of us would be concentrated on the objectives because we were going to be too stuck into melee. So that's how we went into it. He set up in a, a pretty decent defensive position, had his eliminator in the back to be doing the eliminator work, the sniper work, um, a captain, his sergeant right next to him to, you know, kind of protect the assault intercessor kind of in the middle to play switch. And then the, uh, assault, uh, the, the terminator with the assault cannon sitting kind of outside of these pipe works where he had set up and I got the initiative. I had moved my units into scouting positions with the, uh, sentries beginning method. And so I definitely got the jump on him. I was able to get gene stealers up really close, really fast. Um, but I had some trouble uh, going against that uh, Terminator with the assault cannon. It's pretty good. And even when it's going against uh, somebody who's charging, even though you're rolling on six ups for Overwatch, you got six shots, which means you got a you know, one in six chance of hitting something. So it took me uh, several guys to be able to get in on that Terminator. But once I did, it was you know, overwhelming hits, which is what gene stealers do. And then the other ones just kind of chewed up uh, from the back and they met in the middle, resulting in a, he conceded. Now, part of the reason for my victory, especially the second game, was that the dice favored me heavily. I don't know why it is that if I have a five up invuln, I can nail it almost every time, but I, I swear to heaven, when there's a five-up invuln, I can nail it almost every single time. And so his dice were not liking him. My dice were very much liking me. And that absolutely shaped how that particular conflict worked out. But it also demonstrated some of the things that we've been talking about. In that, you know, the, the localized numeric superiority. That's what I was going for with the gene stealers. I knew that they wouldn't be able to go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. One gene stealer versus one space marine you know, that's, that's going to end one way most times. Space Marine's going to beat the pulp out of that gene stealer. Just with the sheer amount of, of things they can do. They can hit them at range, they can hit them close, and then they can melee, like everything is, is well suited for that. But you start getting multiple gene stealers on a Space Marine and you can overwhelm them. And so this is a very similar tactic to, to what we've discussed. And in his particular case, he made decent defensive postures. But I think he probably should have done sorties, you know, gotten me on the defensive, kind of come at me in certain angles. Um, obviously not overextending his forces because he would have been easily overwhelmed. But, I, you know, and, and this is, of course, coming from my head. I didn't actually play the team and uh, I wouldn't necessarily tell him how to play. But that's kind of what I would think, just to break up that continuity, make sure that you're sending things out to, to you know, break it up or get different angles. Anyways, so that's, that's what I did. That's uh, kind of my report for Wargaming this particular week. And now I'm really excited to get into the text with you when we discuss the second half of What is War? For this episode, we're going to be discussing Calculated Aggression 
as it is shown in the latter portion of What is War. This is 10 through 28. Now, in this section, uh, Clausewitz seems to contradict himself, or himself, at times. He, this is something that's widely discussed by scholars, and, and it's a fairly well-held belief that he, he does obviously contradict himself. But I would argue that his contradictions kind of fit the topic. You know, he's providing different ways of thinking about it, different methods, because not just one works in every situation. And he's also questioning his own ideas, which is something that very few writers actually do, but it, it kind of backs up this kind of intellectual process that he's going through. And of course, there's the idea that he does it on purpose. You know, that it's not a matter of him just being inconsistent, but that it's, you know, it's a matter of perspective. And so that's, that's kind of the view that I have. I like Clausewitz. And uh, I mean, the other, the other scholars, ones who are far higher in accreditation than I am, are absolutely entitled to their professional opinion. But I have mine. Anybody who's reading along, I, I hope it's not too thick. I know that this is a, <laughs> can be a very, very heavy book to get through. But let's talk about calculated aggression. Because, you know, war is not an extreme thing, as he says, to be expended in one discharge. We had discussed that last time, that, you know, in an ideal situation, if everything was perfect, maybe the one extreme motion would accomplish something. But those conditions that are imposed are imperfect. They, they, they don't match up with reality. Uh, and, and it kind of it always progresses in this way. The United States did not start off World War II by nuking Japan. That was not the response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. There was a slow progression up to that. You had uh, Midway and the battles down in the Leyte Gulf and all that sort of uh, things going on. And yeah, and so it, it was this gradual progression. Even though the extreme was reached at some point, it was not where it was started. And so with this in mind, we have to consider that everybody develops themselves differently, that different powers develop themselves individually to overcome resistance by inertia or friction. Because all of us move at our same rate. You know, there's some folks who, who grasp something quickly and then people who grasp something slowly. One of the nice things about uh, the system when I was teaching in Tennessee is that people could take just about as long as they needed to, to grasp a subject. That I, as an instructor, would move forward with the majority of the class. If the majority of the class was ready to move on to the next subject, we would. But the people who hadn't passed their tests or their quizzes in the first section, or in the, in the section that we're moving from, aren't just failing. We don't just leave them behind. Because, you know, there's a lot of time up there that you're teaching. You get up, you explain something, you draw on the whiteboard a little bit, and then people take their notes and kind of go to the quizzes. So as an instructor, there was plenty of time for me to be able to spend that individual time with the students, help them grasp exactly what we were talking about in whatever section we were in. So I really dig that. I really dig the idea of each people progress, because it doesn't mean that they didn't master it. Some people struggled with ratios, but once they got that, fractions were a breeze, and they moved right through it. Some people, you know, struggled with basic algebra, but for whatever reason, trig clicked with them. So 
in certain places they moved slower, in certain places they moved faster. And of course, everybody has their own inclination. Some people are drawn toward music, some people are drawn toward sports, and this is just a very general idea of what we're talking about here, but suffice to say that no two people are exactly the same, as no two countries are exactly the same. And so the progression of technology, the progression of culture, is going to be individualized. Of course, it is all driving towards destruction. Remember, all the arts and sciences during a time of war are contributed towards this. But different people are going to draw from different sources. For instance, I don't know many other Belligrim that use dance to enhance their footwork. It's a great idea. I love the fact that I did it. And now that I think about it, there's a few. But it's, it was part of our process. I know a lot of people who that simply wouldn't work for. And perhaps processes that they use wouldn't work for me. And so it's, it's good to look at oneself and say, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? How can I progress? How can I kind of make up for my flaws with more virtues or whatever the case may be? And so remembering that everybody develops individually, we're all facing the same issues. And that's resistance by inertia or friction. Inertia in this particular case, I mean, it means exactly the same thing in, in physics as it does here. An object at rest will stay at rest, an object in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by a exterior power. So when we're, when we're not moving, when things are kind of are in a state of rest, there is resistance in order to get things moving, to make those things develop. But when things are going too fast, it can be hard to pump the brakes on that too. There is such a thing as becoming too abstract, making too many changes, as we'll see in the third section today. And so this needs to be balanced. This idea of, of getting started, but also making sure that you're steering your course correctly, that make sure that we're, we're kind of moving in the direction we want and developing in a manner that befits us, benefits us, befit, whatever. Now, when we're dealing with the idea of friction, of course, in a, in a battle situation, whether it's wargaming or in real battle, there is friction because both sides are trying to accomplish the same thing. It does not go smoothly. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. And so knowing this, there's that constant interplay of friction. There's that constant stress of developing, but also having to develop amongst everybody else's development. I know that here on the Stygian field, when everybody was uh, kind of coming up, we were all getting used to our own styles. We were starting to specialize in certain things. And so the way people fight now has been heavily influenced by the way that other people in the realm have fought. You know, I used to be able to get away with this scorpion rap. And then everybody in the realm learned how to block it, and I had to change my tactics. Other people still use the scorpion wrap. You go out on the field and there's still people who are going to use it. But Stygians were well placed to avoid it, to be able to block it. You know, same thing with dealing with lefties. We have a lot of left-handed people, higher than the statistical amount here in Stygia. But that has made our, our right-handed counterparts much better at fighting against left-handed people. So this is, this is kind of how this friction can lead to beneficial things, especially considering that we're all friends. You know, we're not France versus Russia versus the Habsburgs where there's actual land and lives at stake. You know, this friction can be a very good thing. I, I got a good buddy Thumbs. He, he was a co-host on the show for a goodly long while. And we have been 
rivals and really good friends for our entire Belagarth career. We have pushed each other to do better. Every time one of us makes an advancement, the other one wants to t step up and be able to counter it. And again, we're besties. But in the same token, we, we are rivals. And so I think that that kind of friction is really good for, for development. And in this development, we need to reinforce our courage because the first moral quality that is in danger in a battle situation is courage. How many of us have frozen up? You, know, you get stage fright or you get uh, a little bit of anxiety. You know, we get to the board and even though we've been practicing these things, the, the pressure of being in a tournament situation you know, strikes at our courage. Going out on, the, on a, a field in experience, going out on a national field, even with experience, you know, there's, that's a lot of pressure. There's a lot that can, uh, you know, it's intimidating to do these things. And so we must reinforce our courage at any, any opportunity. War is a gambling game. Anytime. We, uh, we can go into it with the best of intentions, with the best training, but ultimately it's a gambling game. It's a matter of how things play out. And so having courage is a huge part of that because it means that we're going to be able to step up and take the opportunity when it presents itself and not be afraid to do so. Self-reliance is also important in this. Not necessarily having to wait for someone, not necessarily having to depend on other people, but being able to think and do for ourselves, to be individuals amongst a group. And these things help us move toward our objective, which we, we cannot lose sight of throughout the course of this. Remember last time we were talking about maintaining the focus on that objective, making sure that we don't lose sight of the ultimate aim. Because ultimately, the two sides are seeking to conquer one another, and victory for one is destruction for the other. So it, it needs to be taken a little bit seriously if you want to do well. You know, if, if we're doing some Warhammer, there's not going to be a peaceful res resolution at the end. My orcs and your necrons are not going to walk up and shake hands and say, good game. There's utter destruction afterwards. That's, that's what we're going for. On a Belagarth field, you know, we get together and have fun afterwards. But what we're aiming for is the utter destruction of the other team. And in most game types, you don't win unless you eradicate your opponent. So knowing this, we have to make sure that we're doing proportionate responses. And, and knowing that the enemy will do so as well kind of allows us to, to move around. And by a proportionate response, I mean that there, you know, different locations and different severity of threats are going to provoke different responses. If you're moving into a location that isn't necessarily favored by your opponent, there's going to be less resistance. There's going to be less of a response. If we're moving into a position where we don't present much of a threat, there's not going to be that much of a response. And where the converse is true, if we are moving into a position of threat or we are moving to a location that is important, at that point, our enemy is probably going to commit more resources to it. Which means that we have to have an edge in violent excitement. And what this means is to, to maintain the idea of, of moving forward, the idea of, of having these responses and still having that level of focus, that level of drive to be able to main, to be able to do this properly because there is there is the tendency to maybe overcommit or undercommit but there still needs to be that urge that urgency to respond in a proportionate way to our enemy as we can expect them to do for us and all these things are shifting everything is and these rules and I think this is part of what Clausewitz is trying to convey is that the rules that we lay down the logic that we use 
is ultimately still a gambling game. We're still, we're still making the best ideas that we can. We're still basing our ideas on what we have seen in the past, but there's no guarantee that the future is going to be the same as the past. And so we have to understand that war is chameleon-like in character, and it kind of depends on what Clausewitz calls the trinity of war. And so this is the people, the army, and the state. For our purposes, the people is us, the individual, you know, the player. The army is, you know, within a, a wargaming situation, it is your army. Space marines, necrons, orcs, uh, whatever the, <laughs> the things are in uh, some of the other ones. I'm rather focused in Warhammer, if you can't tell. But uh, for, for uh, Belligrim or for other people who do a combat sport of some sort, the army is going to be your team, right? right? And then the state is your realm your local gaming store, your local organization that kind of serves the need for this activity. So when we're dealing with the people, when we're dealing with ourselves, the violence of our elements can be directed toward the destruction of the enemy. Some of us, you know, come coming from martial arts background, we already know how to control that violence. We already know how to push it into a productive form, a, a controlled form to fight with. You know, other people, they just, they have a lot of energy. You know, I've seen people take to the field who don't necessarily know technique, but they do okay because they pay attention and they have energy. And so that's the, that's the violence inside. That's the excitement inside. So maintaining this for ourselves is rather important. You know, just because you've been doing something for nearly 20 years, good God, doesn't mean that it's time to sit back and relax. Even to this day, when I enter the field, that violence enters to me. To this day, when I stand by a board, I'm, I'm pretty confident in most of my uh, strategies. I lose, obviously, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm not perfect, but most of the matchups I have are in my favor. But that's because I come to the board looking to win. I'm not resting on my past laurels. I'm not letting myself cool down or become complacent. I'm coming to the field with violence in my heart. So, I mean, this can be excited in different ways. You know, we can come to it from, from a background of violence like martial arts or some full contact sport. It can also be driven by things like music. I know that for me, about you know half hour, 45 minutes before I leave for practice, I put something on that bumps. You know, I want to listen to that hot fire. I want to start moving and dancing and getting myself warmed up and like, energetically in the space because that's what it is for me it's kind of like a war dance where i'm getting myself into my headspace and then when i put on either garb or when i put on uh, i've got kind of a specific outfit that i wear for warhammer too i enjoy tucked in shirts with a collar and when you put that on it's a uniform it gets you into the mindset when we're putting garb on a uh, uh, some sort of costume or uniform it helps get us in the mindset for the situation it helps uh, summon that internal violence that we're looking for in this particular situation. So the people, that absolutely drives the character of the war is, is what we're bringing to it. What violence is in our heart, what control is in our heart, the drive to win. Now the army. So let's say we're talking about physical wargaming here. This is always a play of probability and it, it's, it's also chance, but it's where the military and the political ends coincide, right? So when we're looking at units 
in something like Belagarth or even the SCA, a lot of the things are themed. You know, there's there's certain colors or there's certain ways of acting or or even rank structure. They're all very individualized and that have a lot of appeal, but people gravitate toward what is already kind of aligned with them. I love all of the triad guys, all the different, all the different branches. I'm pretty tight with my triad extended family, but I am a dark angel. And that is where I landed because that is who I am. That's the, the unit that I vibe with. I've been in a lot of different units. I was in the Urukai, the DGMA, uh, Forsaken, all that sort of thing. And they were great units with great people, but I belong in the dark angels. And so that's, that's, Political in the way that, like, I am aligning my interests with people who have similar interests. But it also helps with the military ends. Because if people are united in this way, if everybody is kind of on the same page in terms of, like, energy and approach to the fight, well, the army does much better. And it's, it's very true with uh, intellectual wargaming, too. The army we choose should be something that comes easily to us. Or at least is something that we can, can learn fairly quickly. You know, I gravitated toward the Admech originally because I love their lore. I just think they're they're neat. <laughs> they just have, you know, such cool background. Their models are really cool looking. But very quickly I realized that Admech was also the army that suited my playstyle. And it continues to suit my playstyle, even as it changes. It's so cool. But the Admech is kind of my focus. The Space Marines, too. I, I really click with the Dark Angel chapter, uh, you know, in this as well. I think it's cool that they match up. And I, and I play them pretty well, too. The armies that I've chosen to play are ones that vibe with my play style, where I don't necessarily have to go outside of who I am to play them correctly. There are other armies that I don't think I could play very well. And there have been armies that I owned that I didn't think I played well enough to, to keep. I just didn't really feel what the army was doing. So I know there's there's uh, players out there, meta players, who switch the army uh, to whatever's popular. And they use the techniques that are popular, and that's, that's awesome. It wins tournaments. I'm not trying to bash it. But this is the way that I approach it. So that's, that's also where the political and the military means coincide. It's something that matches with my interests. It's something where I can feel united with the idea rather than fighting against something that is unnatural to me. And finally, we have the state. The state is a subordinate of the political instrument. The people who are involved in the state are going to influence how it works. And the policies that are put forth are based on the behaviors and the feelings of the people who are there. It fundamentally serves and is subordinate to the political instrument. And, and for us, it's more military and less political. Right? We're, we're kind of focused, whether it's at your local gaming club or on your local field. Most of the time, it's less political and more military, and that kind of keeps things flowing nicely. We've seen over this past year, though, during the pandemic, with realms shutting down in the larger you know, community, uh, I know that the Belagarth community and the Dagger here community have been kind of on fire. Because the only way for anybody to interact with the, the state at this point, is to do so online. There is no military drive. People are practicing individually and perhaps with friends, but the majority of things are either massively curtailed or shut down entirely. And so this makes everything more political, which makes things extremely, you know, uh, factional, 
factionalism is going to increase anytime you have politics. So I'm looking forward to the day that we're able to get out and fight and kind of <laughs> dumb down this keyboard, keyboard cowboy stuff that's going on. And I did it too. I'm not trying to say that I'm not, that I'm not guilty here. I absolutely have been a keyboard cowboy myself. There's some things that stick in my craw that I feel like I got to talk about. And I would love, love for this to end. So, so we've got all these things. We've got our motives and objectives clearly in mind. But next, we have to deal with our opponent because it's not enough, as we've said, to have a good system and a good army or idea in place. We also have to deal with the unknown, which is our opponent. And again, our, our original motive should come first and is the highest consideration, though it needs to be open to flexibility. Our objective cannot be so specific that it can fail if something else changes. If something in, in our parameters changes, we have to be open to flexibility. Especially because we can only truly know our own position, where our people are, what our feelings are, what we're going to do. We're the only ones who can truly know that. And we can only truly know our opponent through what Clausewitz calls reports, but what I would call just observation. We cannot tell what our opponent is thinking. We can read them and we can try to know, but ultimately we only know our own position. So these reports, these observations we make can be uncertain. Is somebody, you know, looking tired because they are actually tired or are they looking tired because they're trying to lull you into a false sense of security? Is a person, you know, kind of like the, the pool shark thing. Is somebody feigning, being new to the game, but then, you know, being extremely good and, and you know, sharking people? It's hard to know this. And so it's hard to take initiative sometimes. It's hard to know, like, if they're moving, if you're moving. I, I see this all the time in... In combat sports, you know, people square up and there's this, this moment of like, okay, who's going to move first? You know, in Warhammer, there's the idea of who's going to engage first. And it's a bit more well-defined in Warhammer because you roll for the initiative. But in terms of like who's going to actually start moving towards their objectives and being so aggressively, it can be hard to know. And a lot of times these reports can be unfactual. Our estimates of our opponent are often way too high or way too low. You know, you enter the field or you, you go to a table and you're like, ah, you know, this person looks newer than me or looks less experienced than me. I got this. Well, we've estimated them too low. And if they even have an ounce of competency, they're going to make us pay for that. On the other side, we might approach somebody on the, on the field or at a table and they might be intimidating. They might have a really, really, really fierce looking army, or they might be a large person in, you know, full body armor and a big shield and a helm and a flail and all those things. I mean, you know, and we might think looking at that, looking at that, that really well-built army or looking at that one person who just is kitted out, we might be thinking of, the, of them too highly. We might be estimating their abilities too highly. And so in that point, we defeat ourselves. In both of these, we defeat ourselves, and so we have to be looking for it. We have to constantly be checking our reports to kind of figure out the situation. Because we can assume a quality by knowing individual character, measures, the situation, and relation to surroundings. And this is an estimate. Remember, we're assuming a quality. We don't know. The reports, you know, could be, could be uh, completely misbased, but we have to make a decision. 
We have to make a decision on something. We may not know what our opponent is thinking about, but sitting here doing nothing is that. You want to avoid that. So if we know their individual character, are they easily prone to anger? Are they easily prone to, uh, you know, being pouty after they uh, lose a, a, a key unit or after they have lost one time in a fight? Is this person... You know, knowing things about them, knowing things about their character absolutely helps us assume a quality that we don't know. And the measures when we're dealing with the size of the army or we're dealing with the, you know, the size of the unit, the skill of the person, these measures are extremely useful for maybe assuming an unknown quality as well. The situation, where are we? What are we doing? What's the field look like? What kind of terrain is on the board? All of these things can contribute as well. And then relation to surroundings. Now, where are they at in terms of surroundings? Are they using their surroundings effectively? And so by knowing these things, or at least having a good idea about these things, we can really get a good idea about our opponent and make educated decisions. They are not concrete, absolute, perfect decisions. They never will be. Humans have a, a weird way of surprising a person. <laughs> so, but this is the best way that we can, because we have to act. So by using things that we know, we can kind of fill in things that we do not know. But in a lot of these cases, defense is superior. And of course, remember that Clausewitz is writing at the time that he is when advancing on somebody really puts you in the open. Unless you've got severe cover or something like that, moving across the field is something that exposes a person in this particular time. But it's also kind of true in the other things we do. You do not extend yourself. You're not necessarily offering yourself in a way that is vulnerable. That being said, you know, it seems a more passive approach. And the stronger the defense, the more that a person will not want to attack it. It'll neutralize the attack, at least when somebody has a weaker motive than the defense requires. So in this particular case, we have to antagonize our opponent to attack when it is not favorable to them. And we can do this by feigning weakness, we can do this by agitating, we can do this through a number of different means, but it is, in this particular case, it's important to try to make them attack you. If you've got a good defensive position, if I've got a nice corner and I'm sitting on, it, on an objective and there's other ones within easy, easy reach, as a shooting army, I want to sit there and be like, come at me. Another way is to antagonize the opponent is to take something they need or take something they want, that antagonizes. But defense is very much different than a suspension of hostility. You know, Clausewitz has some very choice words on the idea of suspension of hostility within war, within a combat situation, and it can all be summed down to one word, don't. Don't suspend hostility. Now, there are obvious natural lulls that occur in combat. We can't just go, 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 go all the time. Um, though if, we're, if we are, if there's periods of unbroken continuity of hostile operations, it accelerates the drive of everything else we've been talking about. Everything in terms of the, going toward extremes, everything in terms of that personal development, all these things are exponentially increased when we're dealing with a, a situation of unbroken continuity of hostile operations. But if we are not continually doing this, we need to still be somewhat engaged. We're not standing down or suspending. And there's a difference between a passive action and inaction. In the terms of a defense where we're trying to antagonize our opponent, that isn't something where we're not acting. We are actively acting 
to try to provoke our opponent to approach us. If we're sitting there with our weapons down and in a non-attacking posture, moving around within relative distances of people, that's a passive action, not inaction, because in that we are disarming our opponent by making ourselves look weaker than we are, and we are able to seize an opportunity. That's what we're looking for. Inaction is sitting there on the field just like talking to your friend about something that doesn't even relate and not really doing anything. That's inaction. Same thing with a Warhammer table. If we are, if we are not acting, if we are either too scared or too intimidated or just lazy, that's bad. That allows our opponent to get an upper hand because now they definitely have the initiative, especially if they're taking the situation seriously. So to kind of recap our section, we have to remember what our motives and objectives are and kind of keep them pure throughout the course of our conflict or our game. But in the same token, they need to be flexible to accommodate changing parameters. And in the same way, we have to read our opponent knowing that we cannot have absolute measures or reports on our opponent. We cannot know exactly what they're going to do, but we can make a pretty good idea. We can get a pretty good idea based on what we already know about the person. And then finally, we should never suspend hostility. Inaction is lethal in a wargaming situation, just as it is on a battlefield situation. And so passive action is preferable and to be pursued. So with these themes in mind, I want to progress to our second section, where we're going to talk to a good friend of mine, Anya. So here with me to demonstrate some of these uh, concepts and methods that we discussed in section one is a good friend of mine, Anya. Now to know a little bit about Anya, she is uh, the president of the realm right now. I am the vice president and she is a tireless worker at, at everything, like keeping things together. I, I am very impressed with her as a person and with her as a fighter. Like uh, you'll never meet somebody who is so willing to learn and so willing to just excel. So I feel like, especially in terms of what we're discussing today, I could not have picked a better person to interview. Anya, thank you so much for coming on the show. Aw, thank you, Malark. Now I'm blushing because that's just so sweet. Um, and thank you very much for having me here. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, so how about you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your wargaming experience? Most of my wargaming experience is Belagarth. Uh, I do some video gaming. I do a little bit of first-person shooter things. But mostly, yeah, Belagarth. And I feel like a little bit of reading... Mostly Bellagarth. <laughs> well, the reading definitely qualifies you to be on the show. Uh, how many years have you been doing Bellagarth? Oh, I started in 2012, and then I left in 2014, and I came back in 2018, and I've been back since then, so six years-ish total. I've been doing this for near 20 years, and you are, do just fine against me in fighting. I... <laughs> Gosh, dang it. But it, it shows the improvement, absolutely. Um, it, unit? Uh, what's going on with there? I am currently a member of the Seraphim of the Stars, which is a tiny little baby unit out of Las Vegas. How did I find them? The internet. <laughs> I want to say it was the Belogarth Geddon wiki pages. And I was like, that's a cool name. Hey, friends, I really like your name. Can I join your unit? And they were like, sure. 
<laughs> so last battle for the ring they barreled me in and then we went out on the big scenario battlefield fight and i led them in a field battle and it was wild and it was so fun and uh yeah i just really get along well with all of them and stuff so it's been really weird and really fun that does sound really fun they do absolutely have a cool name i agree with you there um any sort of theme to the unit or just some folk who are getting together and like fighting Mostly folks getting together who like fighting. I know the premise is kind of people who want to grow themselves and grow as fighters and as service people in our community. So right on kind of thematic, but not I don't even think there's any lore behind it. Well, if it's new, just wait, you know, that's that sort of thing comes later. So good getting in on the ground floor. That's a good place to be for for a lot of these units. So, um. Again, talking about personal growth, I'm glad you brought that up. You have enjoyed a very steep rise, um, and, and I haven't seen you plateau nearly as much as I have other people. So in terms of per personal development, how do you keep that fresh? How are you able to continue that growth consistently? I think a lot of it is that personal growth is part of my entire life and not just my Belgarth life. So I... I'm always growing, like, spiritually, and in my job, I always want to be doing better, and even just in my relationships and my friendships and emotionally as a person and, you know, emotional, what's it called? You know, that word where you're smart about your emotions. <laughs> <laughs> um, Self-realization. Intelligence. Oh, there you go. Emotional intelligence and... So being in Belgarth is just another aspect of my personal growth and growing as a fighter. It's just, it's just really who I am and what I feel like the purpose of life is, is to grow. So that's, that's kind of how I keep going. It's a very positive approach and, and it shows. I mean, it definitely shows in your, in your growth in Belgarth as well. Um, so in terms of, again, you're, you're part of a, a fairly small unit, uh, a rather inexperienced unit, I would imagine. Uh, a lot of people lean on their unit mates for a lot of learning, and, and people also lean on their realm mates. Are, are there any particular people that have really influenced, or are you just a savant and you and you just know how to do these things? I just know everything right off the bat. I no believe problem. it. I believe it. Um, I studied with Sururogu for a long time, and he taught me a lot because I knew nothing about fighting at all when I came into Belgarth. I don't have any martial arts background or anything, which a lot of people do when they come into Belgarth. So I think in some ways I was disadvantaged because I didn't have any of that experience, but in some ways I was advantaged because everything I've learned, I've learned in and through Belgarth. True. So everything is very Belgarth specific, everything that I have learned through fighting. So learning through Roku, who was involved in martial arts for a very long time um and just learning from everybody in Stygia really I don't think there's anybody I haven't learned something from because everyone in Stygia is just so willing and eager to teach even just in the moment constantly it's like hey do that better hey here's this thing that I did and here's how I killed you and now do this thing so that I don't kill you like that next time mm. so all of Stygia has really been awesome at teaching me how to be a better fighter. Well, that's good. I, and that's uh, that's kind of the point. 
that's what everybody wants to strive for, I think, is to have a community that, that builds people up and helps give the advantage and the opportunity for newer fighters to, to rise through the ranks, you know? So that's excellent. I, I'm glad that you've made the most of it. Mm -hmm. Some folks would have the opportunities and, and not use them like you did. So outstanding. You're not my real dad, Stygia, but Stygia is my real dad. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I absolutely get that. So you came into Stygia when folks were already pretty well established. Like a lot of us had either, like you said, we had experience before, we've been fighting for a while. That's, that's rather intimidating, I imagine, going up against that sort of experience and that number of veterans. How, how did you maintain courage? in the face of that danger. I think about this sometimes, and I wonder what kept me coming back to Belagarth. I don't even remember exactly how I came to Belagarth. I know it was through the university somehow. I think I probably saw everyone out fighting on the grass and was like, hey, those look like fun nerds. <laughs> but I don't really know why I stayed other than I just was really excited about what I was doing and it was something very different from anything I'd ever done in my life and I think it was a very good outlet for a lot of things that I never really got to explore in my life like mm -hmm. being a nerd and finding some sort of physical martial art adjacent thing so I think part of it was just that I was excited to be doing things that I'd kind of always wanted to do but mm -hmm. never had a good outlet for that kept me there and just you know, running up against all of these dudes who are, who are like three feet taller than me and um, <laughs> maybe not three feet, but I'm pretty short. So am I the shortest person in Stygia right now? Maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm close. I'm a tall person. So y'all look, look the same to me. I just <laughs> see a bunch short. of heads. <laughs> so, yeah, I think just being excited about what I was doing. And it's not like going into a real war scenario where it's like if I don't know what I'm doing I'm just gonna go out there and die in Belagarth I get to go out there and die and then I get off the field and then we start over and I go out again so mm -hmm. I don't actually die so I think that really helps as well with being able to be brave in the face of things because what's gonna happen like maybe I get a bruise um yeah but it's just not I don't know. It's never been about winning for me. I think that also helps as well. Hmm. I'm not afraid to go out and get dead because I'll learn something from it or I'll have a good time. And that's really what I'm there for. That's a great attitude. And and I think it's useful for a lot of folks. A lot of folks, they we, we just get so into it and it gets so serious, you know. And, and while if you want to uh, be at a certain level, a certain degree of seriousness is... Uh, necessary you also can't lose the fun you can't lose uh the joy of just being out there and and immersed in the thing that you enjoy mm -hmm. right no i absolutely agree with that and and vets would do well to learn that too a lot of us just become stodgy and we're like we're here because we're here we we hate it a little bit we're here <laughs> ah, you gotta have the joy you gotta have the joy absolutely I, I always tell myself if i ever stop having fun in Bellegarde, i mean not that every moment is fun there's frustrating things that happen mm -hmm. but if I ever stop having fun overall, then what am I doing? Because I'm just using my time and my money and my energy to this thing that really doesn't... I mean, it gives a lot back to me, 
and hopefully to my community, but overall, like, it's just a hobby. So if I'm not having fun, what's the point? I feel that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I, I, I dig that. And I think finding new things to take joy in, like, even if, if a certain aspect has lo- lost its shine, uh, finding new things to take joy in, that's pretty easy too. You just have to be brave. Mm-hmm. You just have to be willing to break out of that bubble. Absolutely. And Pelagarth is so good for that because we talk about it being a sport a lot, but I like to call it a community because it's not just a sport. I think that there's a lot of focus there. And usually when we get together, that's what we do. So it makes sense. But if you go to a big event, it's not just sports. It's not just whacking each other with sticks. We're out there doing arts and sciences kind of stuff. So all kinds of crafting and sewing and leatherworking and uh, there was some metalworking at the last online event that I attended. Nice. And yeah, there's just like lore building. I've gotten really into lore building lately. Mm. Uh, I'm so excited about lore things that are happening in my part of the Bellagarth world right now. Word. <laughs> lore is so fun and uh, bardic stuff, mm-hmm. singing and playing music. And I danced at a bardic night one time. It didn't go super well because I was mostly just trying not to fall off the table because it was wobbly, but I was dancing (laughs) on a table. So there's just, and even if the thing isn't out there that you want to do, you can just do it and people will at least watch you do it or listen to you do it, whatever you're doing. But probably other people will join you and be like, yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this thing you're doing. So come to Belgarth and do whatever you want to do. That's, that's absolutely the truth of it. Uh, a lot, like you said, a lot of folks come into it and they're kind of stick jocks, but there's that freedom. There's that freedom to kind of experience it and enjoy it the way, the way that you want to. Now that's a fairly strong motive when you're coming in and you're wanting to have fun and you're wanting to just be a part of the community. That's a great motive to have, but as the combat wears on and as the sort of politics start to kick in, as you get, as you stay more in the sport, of course, politics start to play into things. How do you keep your motives pure? How are you able to continue focusing on what you love and not have all of the other stuff kind of pollute that feeling? Spite. <laughs> Spite. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I We talk about this a lot. Uh, I think spite is one of the knightly virtues. It's not all of the knightly virtues, but it's definitely sometimes you're doing things out of spite because I remember when I started... If you were a woman in Belagarth, you did archery or spear, and that was it. Hmm. So that's come a long way since I started in 2012, so it's not even been 10 years yet. Almost 10 years. Oof. (laughs) Wait until you come on 20, you'll feel real old. (laughs) So, you know, doing so I got good at other things like fighting Florentine and sword and board, kind of. I really love fighting Florentine. It's my jam. I think it's really fun because you can have a shield in the one hand and a sword in the other hand, but your shield can also hit things, which is great. So Florentine, that's my plug for Florentine. But yeah, I I do a lot of things out of spite. I know there's kind of the movement of colorful garb, which for people who don't know me, my theme is rainbow. And fantastic rainbows. You have to see this garb. Like, she has one shiny kit that is just gorgeous. Yeah, I made some shiny rainbow scale armor, scale leather armor, lamellar armor. That's, I'm super proud of it. So, 
Uh, that was kind of out of spite of your garb needs to be green or brown or black, neutral, quote unquote, neutral colors and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And like, Meh, but does it? Because if I can look real great doing what I do in rainbow colors, aren't you just like, yeah, that's awesome. Roll with it. And there's a certain level of intimidation that comes with that. You know, there's bright colors coming at you. I, like, I dress in all black, and while there's a certain sinister aspect to that, it's not, like, in your face. And, like, when you have those bright colors coming at you, it's disorienting in a way. You're like, oh, my gosh, it's so shiny. You will not miss me on the battlefield because I'm both shiny and bright and colorful. Although I am very small, so if I'm behind another person, you might miss me. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, just doing things out of spite is... I think super underrated and I feel like spite is made to sound more negative than it necessarily needs to be. Like, I think that spite can be something that we use to grow mm -hmm. because someone says you can't do that because that's the way we do it. And so I can say out of spite, yeah, but I want to do that. So I'm gonna, and what are you going to do about it? And sometimes the answer is I'm going to tell you, you can't do that still. And then we learn about why we can't do it. Or the person says, oh, grumble, 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 fine. We can do that. Or they say, actually, that looks great. Good job. I'll go grumble in my corner now. And <laughs> So spite, I think, is a really great motivator. Uh, I just think about being out on... So I read a lot of Irish lore. Mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with Irish mythology, like, you definitely should be. It's really great. It's very complicated and weird and not quite as well recorded as, like, Greek history or Roman history or their mythologies and those sorts of things, but it is really cool. And I just think about the battles that they had, which were mostly over cattle, mm -hmm. and so much of what they did was kind of out of spite, like the greatest epic in Irish lore is called the Tawn. It's about a cattle raid. And basically the queen and the king were talking one night and the queen was like, they were comparing all of their wealth that they had. And the queen realized that the king had one more super special fancy bull than she did. And she was like, this is unacceptable. I have to go get this other bull. And so she sent some messengers to go get the bull and the messengers screwed up the communications, of course. And they were like, ha ha, we're going to get this bull. And so it started this whole war between Ulster and Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. Everybody <laughs> and else. so it was, it was very spite motivated of, you know, this guy has one more bull than I do. So I have to go get another bull kind of out of spite. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, ancient politics about cattle being wealth and uh, just a lot of like hierarchical complexities and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, spite, it, uh, it spurs a lot of things. I can dig that, you know, and, and just wanting to prove yourself in a way. No, I can absolutely dig that. Uh, just as an aside, if we had done the Irish book instead of the uh, the Nordic study, Ref the Sly, uh, this is the person who I would have been going to begging to help me with some of the pronunciation. Because while I could muddle my way through Icelandic, uh, Gaelic would be absolutely beyond me. Just... Anytime. I'm all here for it. Although most of the lore is written in 
Old Irish, which is not the same language as modern Irish. It kind of looks the same, like some of it you can recognize, but really no one knows how it's pronounced, so whatever you pronounce it as is correct. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, really just the names would be what I needed help with and, and locations and some of the other things. I only recently realized that their spelling for shillelagh was shillelagh. Mm -hmm. I, at first I, I, I knew the word shillelagh, like verbal spoken, and I had read that word and I knew what it meant. But for whatever reason, my brain didn't go, yes, this is how you say that word. Yeah, it is not. None of Irish is spelled like it sounds. Shillelagh is like shillelagh. Shillelagh. <laughs> no, I dig it. I mean, you know what? I, you could also throw shade at French for that, that, for that same reason. So uh, as a Frenchman, I apologize for my language. Also, I'm not actually a Frenchman. I'm an American, as is evident whenever I try to pronounce French things. Uh, moving on. <laughs> Drinking water. So, spite. Um, you know, that, that's excellent motive. And it helps you, again, kind of maintain your motives pure. Because in spite of all the politics, in spite of all the, uh, the battle wear, just like the, the kind of rundown that sometimes gets the disinterest that forms, spite is what keeps you going there. Uh, the, Anya is a, is a contradiction. Uh, she, she's like, let's all have fun. I love this. Like, everybody get together for community. And then we're just going to do it to spite them. No, I dig that. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> I dig it. Uh, so when we're talking about the field combat, and you've maintained your spite, and you've got your motives, you're going out there, um, what is your preparation? Like, how do you get ready to go on the field? Do you have any sort of like ritual beforehand, any certain meals? Stretches are really important. Mm -hmm. Do your stretches. I'm looking at you, Stygia. Do your stretches. Mm -hmm. But also drinking water, super important. Just taking care of your body, I think, isn't maybe talked about in war in general as much as it maybe should be. But taking care of your body is really important. Like the number of people who just died from infection before penicillin became a thing. It, Yeah, it was way more people than weapons ever killed. So, mm -hmm. like, take care of your body. That's the most important thing you can do for fighting someone. And then mentally, I, I know that there are things that I should be doing. Am I doing those things? Not really. Sometimes I like to dance on the battlefield. A lot of times when I'm going out to fight people... I'm doing it with a big grin on my face because I'm there to have fun. And it's a good reminder to just go out and have fun, which I think if I were on an actual battlefield would probably scare me to death. If someone was coming at me with a grin on their face, I would be like, this person, I'm going to actually move over one. Does someone else want to deal with this? <laughs> well, you know, that was part of the, the terror of like the Picts and the Nords when they would come in. They were absolutely enjoying themselves, usually high out of their minds and, and just grinning and laughing. And, and yeah, their they're sober Roman counterparts or whatever are sitting there going, uh, are these guys okay? Do we need to call an ambulance or something? Oh, okay, they're coming at us. Let's, uh... So, no, I dig that. I dig that. And, uh, I, I mean, like, I have a, like, a pre-game ritual that I go through. I, you know, about an hour or two beforehand, I start the music, the pump-up music, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm doing the dancing, and I'm doing the stretching, and drinking water, and, 
uh, doing everything else that I need to do to kind of get ready for it. And I just get myself into this, this amped up mood. Yeah, I keep telling myself I'm going to do battle meditation for practice or before practice, but then I get there and then people are there and they want to talk to me and then new people come in and I have to have them sign waivers and being in charge of things makes it kind of hard to focus on just my own stuff, which mm. is fine because I don't really need to do that. It just sounds fun and I'll get to do it eventually. Oh, for sure. And it can always be done at home before you come, too. Just get get a little bit of that going on. Uh, I know I like to get up, too. But, I mean, the reason people don't leave you alone, it's not just because you're a realm leader. They also just like you. Aww. It's, it's hard to get people to leave you alone when they like you. It's one of those double-edged swords. <laughs> sort oh, no. Of thing. People like me, and now I have to do things, and, like... <gasps> I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> so going on the field with a clear head... And, and having those pure intentions going out there, I imagine it's fairly easy to read one's opponent. Occasionally. I feel like reading my opponents, at least for me, from my perspective, because I have had to work very hard against a lot of... Just fighting is not a natural instinct for me. So hmm. I think reading opponents is not a thing that I do easily. And I can do it in Stygia because we fight together a lot. And I kind of know how the people that I fight with all the time are going to react to things and what they how what their fighting style is but if I go to an event and I'm fighting against other people pff, all bets are off sure so I really struggle with reading opponents I think and I kind of try to mitigate that by just not giving people time to do the things they like to do sure uh, the best defense is a good offense, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> if you don't give them the time to, to throw a strike, that's the best way to do it. A lot of the commanders that we uh, have read would absolutely agree with you. Uh, Frederick the Great especially would absolutely agree with you. So it, it's not necessarily necessary then to know everything about your opponent in order to make intelligent decisions when it comes to fighting, mm -hmm. which I dig. Um, which also means that like, there's got to be times where there's lulls. You know, like, you can't just be throwing shots all the time. Nobody can do that. Our arms are going to get tired. And certainly there's a time for the use of distance, the use of inaction in a fight. Uh, when that happens, what are you looking to do? Like, why are you kind of going to the clinch, as it were? Absolutely. We did this last Sunday. Turkey Feathers and I teamed up for Soul Link and... We were both kind of exhausted because we'd been running around a lot. It was We were a few rounds into Soul Link, which involves a lot of running because when your partner dies, then you just have to stay alive for a few seconds and then they can respawn. But if you don't stay alive, then you're both dead. So if your partner dies, you just run away and you run as far away as you can because people are going to chase you because they want you dead. Mm -hmm. So that round of Soul Link, we've been doing a lot of running and we're both huffing and puffing. Like, let's just go stand over here in this corner far away from the whole fray and we'll just stand here and we won't look imposing and everybody will just go fight each other and we'll clean up what's left and i think we won pretty sure that happened so inactivity can be super effective at least in bellegarth in my experience if you just don't look imposing and don't look like you want to fight people then sometimes they just won't fight you See, 
To me, though, that doesn't necessarily sound like inaction because while you're there, you're looking for an opportunity. You're not just sitting there like kicking your feet up, taking a break, deciding that you don't really want to participate in the fight anymore. Um, it, it's a matter of you're going and actively looking for for an opportunity, actively looking for the opening, right? I suppose. Almost, well, a lot of times I'm just standing there watching and laughing at other people while they murder each other. <laughs> I suppose that's an action in of itself, the humor aspect. You're just my entertainment now. I'm just lording over the field while you all entertain me. And then, oh, no, that person's coming to kill me. Okay, I guess, I guess I'll go fight them now. For sure. So when you're going to an event and you're on the field, what particular things are you looking for in order to use your strengths to their best? Because certain things are required to be a flanker, certain things are required to be a, a, a main lineman, uh, one of the volley archers, whatever the case may be. How do you use your talents to their best ability? I find that I work really well with other people, or at least most optimally. I'm not excellent at fighting other people by myself, one-on-one, -on -one, solo, but if you put me with some other people, I know how to be obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> And I think in a team, you don't necessarily have to be, because I'm not, I'm like mid-tier fighter, like lower mid to mid-mid-tier fighter. So I don't like to rely on my fighting skills to get the job done because I'm just not there yet. Hmm. Not that I won't be someday. I'm working on it. Like we said, growth. Mm -hmm. But if you put me in with another really good fighter and we go out and fight together, like going and fighting with turkey feathers, hey, let's use this strategy because this is a thing that works well for me and it works well for me. So fighting with someone who we, especially if we get to fight together, like if I'm fighting with another Stygian mm -hmm. and I've seen how they fight and I know how they fight, it's that's what's really helpful for me to use my strengths because... I know what I know what shots they want and I can help open those shots and help them get them or I can say I need this shot can you help me get there mm -hmm. so I think I work really well in a team mm. as far as fighting goes and that's where I like to be I don't I'm not a good tank because <laughs> I mean it's, I, if you give me a big shield I can be a good tank because sure. you know I'm a small person and put me behind a big shield and try to hit me good luck I don't even know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> I see nothing, but you will not hurt me. But I do, I do like being shoulder, sh I also fight as a lefty. So mm. if you put me with another right-handed person, like if we are both doing sword and board and now we just get to be a two-headed monster, great time. Mm -hmm. I'm a lefty too. So we probably just want to stand next to each other Spartan style mm -hmm. in that particular case. No, it's good. And I, and I think it's really important to be able to work with other people, even for, for veteran fighters who may even be able to hold their own. Uh, victory, honest victory is achieved in the larger combat. Mm -hmm. And I dig that. I think another aspect of that is as a mid-level fighter, if I'm coming up against a, like a higher level fighter, I might not say, I'm going to go kill this person. Mm -hmm. I might say, I am going to take a limb from this person so that the next person they come up against has a better chance. So thinking in that team headspace of just because I'm going to die doesn't mean that we're going to lose. Right. Right. It, it's the uh, the tactical mm -hmm. aspect of it, that, it, having the long vision, as it were. 
Well, Anya, I had a whole series of other questions I wanted to get to, but it appears that we've run out of time. And, I mean, that's the problem with enjoying speaking with somebody. The time just goes incredibly quickly. Being likable is the worst. I know. I know. So, I mean, like, you're going to continue getting harassed at practice, but it's, again, it's not just because you're an authority figure. It's because, you know, folks like you. Aww. Well, thank you so much, Anya. It was really a treat to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great time. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I've been listening on and off to this podcast, so it's fun to be on here. Well, I, it's, I'm glad that you enjoy it, and it's excellent to have you on as well. Uh, but for the rest of us, dear listeners, we are going to be moving on and talking a bit about the continuation of the French Revolution. Do you hear the people sing? <laughs> Last episode, we discussed the French reformers who were trying to modernize the French army and make it into a fighting force worthy of its name. Remember that France had been a power, a major power in Europe for a, a goodly long while. And so they were trying to maintain this. They were trying to maintain what they already had, this very impressive military with this very impressive state apparatus, or at least... Louis XIV had these things. Today, we're going to be discussing the things that were working against this. These reformers were obviously trying to save what was happening, save their country. But the forces working against them were obviously more powerful because the revolution happened. So we're going to finish up uh, talking about the path of the revolutionary because this is also important. This is the lead up to the wars that Clausewitz was involved with. These are the wars that shaped his ideas in this book. So, again, I think this information is very useful and also pretty darn interesting. I've been enjoying researching it. So there's four things that need to be done in order to have a change of state. You know, for instance, in France, to move from a monarchy to a republic. And these things are, need to be present each time. The first one is delegitimate the existing regime. Make people see that it is not doing its job. Next one is to legitimate your own alternative. You know, it's not enough to be like, oh, you know, they suck. But you have to be like, they suck, and I've got a better idea. And then the third one is creating an alternative force. Something to resist, because the state has an army. They have police. And so having some sort of alternative force in order to confront that is also very important. And then lastly, breaking the monopoly enjoyed by the enemy. The state has a monopoly on a lot of different things. And so breaking those monopolies is another good way to just bring it down. It takes away all the legitimacy and makes it so that there's a chance to raise up one's own ideals or to, to uh, succeed in your revolution. So let's start with this first one. Delegitimate the existing regime. Now, this could be a, a, a play in intellectualism. It could be something that is, you know, direct criticism of policy. But in some cases, and in this one, the behavior of the state, and I, and I don't mean, like, state is such a modern word to use. This wasn't even a state. The behavior of the monarchy kind of de delegitimated 
themselves. Is that a word delegitimated? We're going to go with it. They did this to themselves. So let's kind of talk about how they were able to chip away at the idea that the monarchy was doing its job, that it was actually good for its people. So there was a, a degree of success for uh, Louis the Fifteenth between 1744 and 45. You know, leading battles was definitely out there, uh, making a name for France, was out there restoring some glory. And then after that, there was a devastating string of defeats, which led to a financial crisis throughout 1746 to 48. And all of the territory that they had won, all of the progress that they had made was, was ceded to the Habsburgs. And so that was an insult. That was an insult to all this struggle, all this suffering, all this sacrifice that they had done through these previous conflicts. And it was just, it was just over, just returned to the Habsburgs. So that was a major chip in the armor. Let's talk a little bit more about Louis XV himself. He is described as being intelligent, good-natured, and generous. He sounds like he'd be a good friend. Nice person to hang out with, for sure. You know, you always like people you can have a, a good conversation with, people who are, you know, nice and, and like to share. You know, these are, these are good qualities in a, in a human being, for sure. However, there are more qualities that are called for in somebody who rules a country, in particular a monarch. Monarchs are expected to maintain a certain appearance. They're supposed to be aloof but accessible. They're supposed to be in charge, but also... Well, no, they're just supposed to be in charge. <laughs> There's no contradiction there. And so the problem for Louis XV was not that he was a bad person, but just that he was a bad leader. You know, the, the worst decision he made, Frederick the Great said this, the worst decision he ever made was to be king. <laughs> Again, nice guy by, by all accounts, but he was also lacking in resolution. He'd have an idea and wouldn't follow through, or he'd hem and haw over things. And this was something that his predecessor did not do. Louis XIV had conviction. He had resolution to follow things through. And his uh, successor did not. He was also timid. You don't necessarily want a leader who is timid, who, who seems afraid maybe of their own shadow. A leader needs to be brave. A leader needs to be an inspiration to their people, even if they don't feel that way, even if they're, they're you know, anxious on the inside. The appearance of appearing strong is important, especially for a king. Again, in the modern age, we're able to express a lot more of our individual feelings because not any of us is trying to, to claim divine right. Remember that the monarchies in Europe functioned off of this divine right of kings, this idea that God himself had appointed these families to rule their countries. How presumptive. But... With that in mind, with people, you know, a lot of people still believing in this idea, it was important to maintain the illusion. And, you know, being timid wasn't a part of that. In addition, he was a poor speaker, a poor public speaker. A king obviously makes a lot of addresses to the people. A king is supposed to speak to their war councils and to their houses of lords or whatever other organizations they have. And to do this, they have to be clear, concise, and good at it. Engage people, draw them in. And so a king who is a poor speaker, it doesn't really pump anybody up very much. It doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence, even, even if he was competent, which mm, it's still, the, being a poor speaker absolutely drew away from that. And then he was also mercurial. 
He would have day, like times where he was very active and very involved and other times where he would just basically disappear from public life and leave the, the ruling to the folks that he had appointed to those positions. And so these things detracted from the appearance of the monarchy, which detracted from the power of the monarchy, further delegitimating, delegitimizing, that's a weird word, the existing regime. Next came a low punch because the diplomatic revolution, as I mean, most of us heard that word in our high school history class, and most of us have probably forgotten it by now, but it was a big deal. It shook up politics all across the continent. And after two centuries of constant conflict, two centuries of animosity, two centuries of hostility, on May 17th, 56, France signs an agreement and makes an alliance with the Habsburgs. This is insult to injury. Again, the Habsburgs have been a, a primary enemy for over two centuries. And to suddenly be allies with them. The people did not like this. Their hostility was already directed in that direction, and so it, it showed a weakness of the state that they were no longer able to resist their longtime enemy. And, and this may have been successful. You know, if, if it would have been acceptable if it was successful. However, there were a lot of drawbacks, again, that kind of ate away at this, this legitimacy. For instance, because of this alliance, they were unable to come to the aid of some previous allies because of their, you know, existing deal with whoever. For instance, Poland was being partitioned and France had been a longtime ally of Poland, but they couldn't intervene because folks who they were aligned with through various alliances were doing it. So direct action, they, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't engage in that direct action. And they started to f suffer from further humiliations. The Seven Years' War, which was a massive drain on resources and on morale, saw the French defeated in Canada, the Caribbean, and India. They lost a lot of their overseas holdings. And this was a big deal. Because a good portion of the world right now is English-speaking. And unfortunately, that was through colonialism. But this uh, period of time is the reason that we're not all speaking French. Why well, I'm not doing this, this podcast in French, it a big, for a big reason, was because of the, the losses incurred by the French during this conflict. And then, then, we have Frederick the Great. You know how I feel about Frederick the Great. And he invades Habsburg territory. Very bold. And again, he's kind of an upstart. His country isn't exactly super well thought of across the continent. They got a small army. Yeah, it's decently well trained, but they're not expecting much from it. So you get this loose army of French, Habsburg, Russian, and some other allies kind of going to confront this, this fly, this gnat to be swatted. And uh, I think we all know what happened in 1757. It's been a pretty big part of what we've been talking about from the Prussian side and from the French side. You had the bottle, Battle of Rosbach, or Rosbach, or, or whatever it's pronounced as. But like, this was huge. This battle was pivotal to European history and, and in a large way to, to a lot of world history because of it. Because it showed that the actual deterioration of the French army, the illusion is broken. You know, France 
can no longer maintain any sort of superiority over other folks. They are, they are indebted, basically, you know, subordinate to the Habsburgs. They can't even take on an upstart small power. This is certainly detracting from the idea that, you know, the kings are divine. Another gut punch comes when uh, the Dauphin, uh, who would become Louis XVI, is married to Marie Antoinette, a Habsburg, very well connected through old world families. And, and again, this is a, a direct insult. These are folks who had been enemies up until a year, like a year or two before. This is crazy. Very recently. And so not only are they now working with the Habsburgs and listening to the Habsburgs when they are saying who to attack and when to attack, but also their soon-to-be king is married to one. Insult to injury. The French were mad. They were mad. And one of the last things that happened that really put the nail in the coffin is that the British and the Prussians started to encroach on the Dutch. And they turned to the French for help. Now, one might think, well, that's a rather small country. Why, why was it so important? Why was this kind of a pivotal point as to what was happening? Uh, the Dutch had amazing overseas holdings, very rich, and their navy was par excellence. It was one of the best navies in the world. So controlling the Dutch state was very important. And they had their own issues. They had, you know, revolutionaries and they had royals and there was a whole lot of drama and a whole lot of bad blood. But ultimately, the Dutch turned to France and they were broke, but they had just enough money to be able to send the aid. However, the intervention was vetoed by a subordinate of the king, not even the king, but a subordinate vetoed this whole idea. And there was this, this camp at Givet that was supposed like, it was making the Prussians who were now under uh, Frederick the Great's uh, predecessor, successor and the British nervous because even the French being there, even as downtrodden and kind of broken as their army was, they were still a consideration. But it was a lie. There was no camp at Givet. And once they realized that, they were able to invade without any sort of issue. And so through all of this, through the, the actions of his predecessor and through his own actions, Louis XVI's regime is now viewed as impotent. It can't accomplish anything. It can't protect its allies. It can't protect its borders. It can't protect its autonomy. So in a lot of ways, the French monarchy delegitimized itself. Now, again, to have a successful revolution, it's not enough to just have the existing regime being broken down. It's not enough to just observe the flaws and, and know that they're there. There has to be a legitimate alternative. There has to be something that people are interested in. And that was here. Remember the philosophers, remember that uh, a lot of different writers and, and thinkers were discussing this idea of national sovereignty. The idea that the state belongs to the people, that the people should be well represented and that their needs should be met by the state. And this was a secular idea, which is why it was being so well received. There were all sorts of people trying to propose ideas that were religious in nature or really, really politi politically specific. But the idea of national sovereignty, being able to control your own state and, and by which you're, you're kind of your own destiny, was a really, really hot idea at the time. Now, the English and the Prussians were dealing with similar uh, rumblings and feelings, but they were able to kind of stave off their revolutions by kind of 
giving the people some of what they wanted, giving them more involvement in the government, giving them more of a direct line to who was in charge. It made them feel more, more involved. Uh, the French weren't really doing that. And so this wasn't necessarily a neat thing that needed to be subversive. It wasn't something that needed to completely destroy the existing regime. Remember that, I mean, France still has technically a parliamentary monarchy. They've got monarchs. And they've got parliament. And so the one doesn't necessarily have to cancel out the other. You don't need to destroy the old world in order to bring in the new. Unless you do. So this revolution begins in two centers. Versailles and Paris. Now, these are, these are very important places, and there's a reason why the revolution kind of uh, blossoms in these two places. Versailles is where the Estates General met. And this, this in of itself was a big deal. France was having issues, and issues with the first estate, issues with the second estate, and of course the third estate. You know, the, these, these issues were coming from the top down. The state was broken. And so everybody was experiencing it. So the Estates General was drawing people from each of those estates, all three of them, into a meeting, into a place where they could discuss issues and come up with answers as, as a people, as an overall body speaking for and representing the interests of their people. And this was new. This was very new in France because this was a, a political notion that was legitimized by electors. These folks what got voted in. They were selected. And so that's a, a huge form of legitimacy in of itself. Because we, we tend to believe in people that we put in office. That doesn't necessarily mean that they live up to our expectations. But it is good that we get to choose them. So, the, so this uh, assembly was a place where there was a great deal of discontent and where, where kind of everything started shifting toward revolution. Right? And in Paris... You had people who were emboldened only by themselves. It was a very different sort of look because while in Versailles you had folks who were emboldened by the fact that they were elected by the, the class that they represented, you had various thinkers and various idea havers that were all kind of different in Paris and they were not elected. They were kind of the leaders of their own movements in of themselves. They elected themselves. And so Paris had a much more violent time. You had the Rebellion riots, for instance, that happened 1789 between the 27th and the 28th of April. And this was a, a massive thing, like the, the city was on fire sort of riot. So you had very different approaches to the revolution that eventually would kind of coincide with each other. Now, if we're looking at this estate's general, you would think that the big estate that would stand in the way would be the second one, the nobility right? However, the majority of the representatives from the second estate were army officers, very disillusioned army officers. They had been participating in this broke system under this broke regime, and they were not happy. And they were the ones representing the second estate. And then another way to legitimate their movement was to befriend the French guard. Now, the French guard was, was kind of like a policing military force that protected the city. And they started befriending them. They invited them out for, to come to their, their coffee places. They were drinking with them. They really did a lot of work in making sure that the French guard saw them not only as people, but as allies, as fellow patriots. And so both of these things helped with doing the third, because both of these, these two things are intellectual exercises. 
to delegitimate your opponent and to legitimate your own regime, these are pretty easy to do. Most people do it. I've, I've seen it happen uh, uncountable times in the course of my life in studying politics. But the third one, this third one is the, the kicker. Create an alternative force. There needs to be some way to resist the force of the state and, and, and inflict our will over them. Remember that, that war is politics pushed into different means. And so to be able to pursue this kind of revolutionary politics, they needed to create the alternative force. Uh, luckily for them, it was already there. The French Guard, who were the best line of defense at the time against the, the riots and the, everything that was happening, and especially Paris, didn't do their jobs. In fact, they walked over to the other side because those folks were their buddies. They liked them way more than the existing regime where you had, uh, you know, people who were trying to reform everything to fit their own personal ideas. You had good reformers, but you also had folks who were doing it willy-nilly and it wasn't serving a purpose. And so the French Guard join up with the revolutionaries and a lot of the army mutinies too. Like the, the king draws in the forces from the border area, but then he never actually deploys them in the city because the threat of mutiny was too high. That is how messed up the state was. And then you had, of course, the Citizens Militia, which is the first organization, I'm pretty sure, to be called a National Guard, which we have here in the States. But it was a Citizens Militia made up of folks who were just motivated. They were, they were, they were wanting to implement their own ideas. They were trying to take down the existing regime. But again, you have people who have no training and whatever weapons they can find. And so they would not have stood a chance against the French guard and the army. No way. No way. If the army had stepped in and put its foot down and really dedicated, this would not have happened. This revolution simply would not have happened. So the army played a critical role because they were the alternative force. They just flipped. It was a military coup in as much as it was a, a cultural revolution. And so this accomplishes the fourth of our necessary uh, steps on the path of a revolutionary, which is to break the monopoly enjoyed by the enemy. And there's a couple of uh, several monopolies that need to be broken. First is the monopoly of policy. Who gets to decide? Who's the lawmaker? Who's, who's laying down the edicts and the verdicts? Who's in charge of, of making the decisions and, and changes within society? It had previously been the monarchs. They were the ones to do it. And they maybe consulted with the first and second estate, but ultimately it came down to whatever they wanted. Louis XIV had an ironclad state and army. It was all his policy. It was driven by his will, by his desires. On the flip side, you had Louis XVI, who did not have good policy, was not able to unite the people, was not able to unite the nobles, who are factional by nature. And then, of course, you had the estates. He, he kind of gave away the power of policy to the estates general. What they were supposed to do was come up with ideas to present to the king. What they actually did <laughs> was take that power away and start having their own ideas. For instance, they wanted to write a new constitution. And they said that they were not going to abandon this idea, the, 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 the gathering of the Estates General, until they had a new constitution, directly taking power away from the existing monarchy. So power of policy, a monop monopoly of policy is one of the things that the state enjoys. The second one that's really important is the monopoly of violence, 
or legitimate force. You know, most of us, I mean, all of us who live in, in any sort of civilized society with rules and laws, we're not allowed to kill people. I can't just walk on the street and kill somebody. And even if I feel threatened by somebody, it's, it's you know, still unlikely that I can just kill them and be okay. Because the state has a monopoly on violence. Now, the state is able to go out there and embolden police officers to be able to commit violence that us citizens are not allowed to commit. The army can go out and kill people and, and occupy places and do things that no regular citizen would be allowed to do. But it's because the state is authorizing it. They're the only ones with legitimate force. And so by creating this alternative force and by storming the Bastille, it was a symbolic act that the state had been broken. They did not have the monopoly on violence anymore. They were not protected. But yeah, the storming of the Bastille was, was kind of the last straw. It was the symbolic victory of the revolution over the existing regime. Louis XVI steps down, kind of bears his humiliation to the crowd, and you have the revolution that sparked all of this. Because again, the rest of Europe is watching. The rest of Europe is watching how this goes down, the system, the process. And they don't like this. They don't like the idea of, of a, a free and secular state for a number of reasons. One, it's harder to control. You know, the monarchies were able to kind of maintain their power by all of these, these marriages. You know, I had people who were married, like, you know, the Louis XVI, married to a Habsburg, whose parents were from other places, you know, Portuguese and Spanish, and like all of them had these complicated family trees that intricately tied them all together. The secular state doesn't have that. When you've got rotating leadership, you don't get that, those systems of loyalty as strong between people and between states. And of course, there's the idea that none of them wanted to lose their monarchies. If this state, if, the, if this idea of national sovereignty worked out, uh, that's a serious hit to their power <laughs> and a serious hit to their legitimacy. So that is a big reason why these wars that we're about to talk about happened. So we, we see France, it was struggling to stay on its feet, but ultimately could not stave off destruction. But through these reforms and through the reinvigoration of the now secular state, they were able to progress forward. And that is where our story will pick up next time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. 